Behold, this is God speaking, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive uh, them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and, and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For I, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Lord, we come now humbly before your word. And Lord, we, we desperately want to hear from you. So Lord, soften our hearts. May we be teachable. May we be eager. It would be hungry for your truth. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, to be your mouthpiece from this text to your people. May we all, as a result of our time together, be molded and shaped to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now this morning, we're coming really to the last paragraph, the last section of what is known as the case law. If you remember, basically chapter 1 all the way through chapter 19 has been narrative, the story of Israel and their exodus and entering into the wilderness and ultimately going through uh, the, the waters of the Red Sea. And we get to chapter 20 and it's the Ten Commandments. And then from chapter 21 through 23, it's the case law. It's the supporting documentation. We consider it law, um, and it is this, this kind of section that fleshes out what does the Ten Commandments look like in practical living among the Israelites. And we're at the end of this section, um, the end of chapter 3. And, of course, what we have been studying over the past number of weeks are what we would call rules. In fact, in chapter one, or sorry, chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, now these are the rules 
that you should set before them. And, and you know, at first, we kind of bristle. We, we don't like rules. We see rules as being somewhat negative, as being bad things. What is doing with Israel, these rules are actually good things. They're helpful and protective guardrails so that this newly formed nation of Israel can press on in their journey to the promised land with justice and order for all. Now, I know that many of you are chomping at the bit for COVID-19 restrictions to be lifted so that you can turn to your children and say, hey kids, mom and I want you to know that because of all the hardship of this season and, and the fact that we love you so very much, that we've been saving our money so that we can take you on a trip to Disneyland. Now, after your kids, you know, start, you know, finish you know, hoop, hooting and hollering and, you know, just celebrating the fact that they have the best ever parents in the whole wide world, you as parents say, now, we want to take you to Disneyland, but there are going to be some rules that we're going to need to put into place so that we can have the best experience possible. And so that you're not tired, and you're not cranky, and you're not complaining, and you're not whining, and you're not hungry. We want you to have the best experience possible. So we've talked to your teachers, and all of your assignments need to be done by tomorrow night. So you're going to have to work hard and get those things done. All of you need to be showered and in bed by 10 o'clock tomorrow night because we have an early morning. We're going to leave at 6 o'clock to beat the traffic, you know, so that we can get on I-5 and get through the grapevine and get to where we need to go. And mom will need to inspect everything that you are putting in your suitcase to make sure you have the right kind of clothing and the right kind of shoes. What mom says is final. You will go to the bathroom when we say go to the bathroom. You will eat when we say it's time to eat. You will sleep when we say it's time to sleep. But we promise that if you pay attention to what we are saying, if you listen to us, that you will have a great time. We'll ride all the rides. We'll eat some of that great food at Goofy's Kitchen. We'll see Mickey and Darth Vader and Elsa. And we will let you get some nice souvenirs. It's going to be a great trip, kids. But you must follow the rules. Because if you don't, it won't be the happiest place on earth. And you know what it's like when you get there. You, you look at all these families and it's like, well, they didn't have any rules for this trip. Because they're not happy. But see, here's the thing. Those rules really were not bad things. Those rules were good things. So that when you get to your destination of Disneyland, you can enjoy your time. You're rested. You're fed, you're clothed, you're prepared, you're ready to go. So these rules aren't burdensome. They're helpful, they're necessary for the health and for the rest 
and for the, the benefit of Israel. And this is what we're, we're getting into. They're given rules, not just for rule's sake. And if we're just to jump into the Old Testament and jump into the law, we'll just see rules for rule's sake. But when we understand it in context, we realize that God is giving these rules for our benefit so that we can enjoy the life and the journey he has for us. Sometimes we can be guilty of allowing ourselves to be so transfixed with the rules that God gives us that we forget the wonderful destination he has prepared for us. We stop thinking about the wonder and the glory of heaven. And we start complaining about, well, how come God doesn't want me to do this? And how come he doesn't want me to do that? Friends, we in this passage see a movement taking place. This case law isn't just to lay down some rules, but it's, it's, it's rules that help us move to a particular place. And for Israel, it was moving from that mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and this case law to now embark on a journey through the wilderness and into the promised land. And Israel now will be going on this pilgrimage. And so I would like for us to see that in this passage, God gives three promises for gospel pilgrims. Three promises for God's children as they make their journey into the promised land. Aren't you thankful that we're not going to Disneyland? <laughs> we're going to the promised land. And there is a parallel in this text for us. Israel's going into the promised land. And even as God's children now, as believers, as Christians, we have the prospect, the wonderful, beautiful, glorious prospect of heaven. And what we're going to see here, first of all, is the, the promise of an angel, the promise of land, and then the promise of victory. Let's jump in now and consider the angel, the promise of this angel to guide us. In verses 20 and 21, the Lord tells Israel that he will send an angel before them who will lead them on their journey and who will bring them safely to the land God has prepared for them. Don't, don't kind of just you know, skip over that. That's very significant stuff. But this, of course, is no ordinary angel. So who is this angel? Well, some commentators try to suggest that this is a reference to a human messenger, because an angel can mean that. So a human messenger like Moses, um, or even Joshua in particular. Others speculate that this is referring to an angel like Gabriel or, or Michael, or even talking about the pillar and the fire. But we're told some specific things about this angel in this text. What, what are we told? Well, and look in verse, 20, verse 21, we're told, first of all, that he is to be listened to. In other words, we are to pay, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. This idea of paying careful attention is the same expression that God uses about Israel paying attention to what he says. In other words, they are to pay attention to this angel in the same way that they are to pay attention to God himself. And see where this is moving. Secondly, he is to be obeyed. Right Again, verse 22 and, and, and verse 21. Carefully obey his voice and do all that I have said to you. In other words, the angelic voice 
is itself the very speech of God. He's not to be rebelled against. You do what he says. You don't, you don't fight against him. You don't shake your fist at him. You follow his lead. But then we get to this fourth one in verse 21. He has the authority to pardon sin. Notice what it says there. For he will not pardon your transgression. In other words, he has the authority to either pardon or not pardon. Your average angel doesn't have that authority. This is not just some, you know, kind of guardian angel that we think about or, you know, there are shows about. Remember, touched by an angel. You know, it's like there's a guardian angel around all over the place, right? No, this is a specific angel. In verse 21 now, God, the Father, says, my name is in him. Now we just kind of settle with those things. He says, my name is in him, right? In the context of the book of Exodus, and in the context of God speaking, when God talks about his name, he's talking about his very being. Turn your Bibles to chapter 3 of Exodus. I want to remind you of a section of scriptures that we've already walked through, but it's been a while back, almost a year, actually. And if you remember in chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, that God reveals to Moses that he had heard the cry of Israel. This is Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And, the, and God says, I've heard the cry of Israel, and I'm going to deliver the, the Israelites from the Egyptians, and I'm going to take them out of the land. And he says, to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, friends, that was a wonderful promise. And God tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But how does Moses respond? This is where we find out ah, Moses is struggling with, with fear and confidence, courage. So he, he, he is caught up with his weakness. He's caught up with his fear. And this is what he says. Who shall I say sent me? What is his name? And the Lord responds, tell them I am who I am. This is verse 14. Tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am is Yahweh. That is his name. So when God says my name is in him, he is saying my nature is his, my character is his. I am revealed to you in him. So who is this angel who speaks with God's voice? who commands the same obedience as God requires, who holds the position to forgive or punish sin, who is the angel in whom the very nature of God dwells? Well, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's the very Son of God Himself. It's the second person of the Trinity. It is Christ. It is Christ in His pre-incarnate uh, nature, situation, who will lead and guide Israel on their journey. Now, again, I remind you of Luke 24. Don't turn there, but when Jesus is, is talking to these two disciples that don't know it's him, this is after his resurrection, he opened up the, the scriptures, which were the Old Testament, and he started to proclaim about himself in the Old Testament. And I just wonder whether he landed on this text. He says, let me remind you, I am this angel that was leading and guiding and preparing the way for Israel. 
So how can we be sure that this angel is Christ? Let's just do some, some work now in the New Testament. Let's think through this. We want to make sure that we get this right. So turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Now this is important for us because you want, to, you want to be able to see that the Old Testament is full of Christ. Christ is not just a New Testament person. He's there in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And I want you to, to hear the, 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 the shadows and the echoes that we find in the text. We're going to look at two. First one, Mark chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Here in this passage, it's a story about the paralytic, if you remember, who was brought by four, and they went upstairs on the roof and broke a hole in the roof because there's so many people they couldn't get in. They lowered the paralytic down to Jesus, and they brought him to him so that he would heal him. But the surprise of the story is this. Jesus doesn't heal the paralytic. Instead, what he does is he says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leadership that happened to be there as observers in their hearts were thrown into a tizzy. And Mark reveals to us not what they say necessarily, but what's going on in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Echo, echo, echo. And then Jesus confronts them for what they're thinking and says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this angel that's leading Israel is doing what? He's saying, I have the one that can forgive or not forgive sins. I have the authority to do that. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Again, another echo of our text when Jesus is speaking with his disciples. Again, I'm going to read this and just listen for the, for the echo from the Old Testament that, that we see now in the life of Jesus Christ and his words. John 14, 1 and following. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way that I'm going. In other words, what's Jesus saying here? I am going ahead to prepare a place for you. Does this sound similar? And then he goes on a little bit later because Thomas is like, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is going ahead to prepare a place for us. And of course, what we find here is that Israel is making its way through the wilderness as a type of our Christian pilgrimage, as a picture of of the Christian life. This angel is going ahead to prepare a place for Israel, and Christ goes ahead to prepare a place for us. In fact, Jesus says, I am the only way. 
to get to that place. So again, you, you just hear the echoes from this text in, in Exodus, pointing to the fact that, that one of the promises for them is that they will be guided by an angel to the place that God has prepared for them. How is Christ guiding Israel and us? Let me just highlight this as briefly as possible. He goes before us to prepare a place. He guides us on our way. He speaks to us through his word. And how are we to follow Christ on that journey? We must be careful to pay attention to what he says, to obey his voice, and be careful to not rebel against him. These are all things that have already been said in different ways, but just putting it categorically here for us, it's helpful. So we have the promise of an angel to guide us. Secondly, we have the promise, and they had uh, uh, this, this promise of a, a land to welcome them. Did you notice how many times the word land or a synonym of that is used in this text? Just listen or watch on the screen. Verse 20, it's the place. Verse 26, in your land. Verse 29, the land. Verse 30, the land. Verse 31, your border and the land. Verse 33, your land. Land, 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 place, your land. You think God is trying to say something to them. There's a land that I'm sending you to. And this angel will get you to that place, to that land, to your land. He will guide you home. They who have been slaves in Egypt are now going to be sojourners in the wilderness until that one day they enter into that promised land. And friends, this is not a residence, but a home. See, this land is not just the physical land. It is physical land, but it's more than that. This is their home. And there's a difference between a residence and a home. A residence may be where you are living temporarily, but a home is where you know you belong. This is my home. And notice verses 25 through 26. We have here a description of, of what this home will look like. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, at face value, these descriptions sound like Israel will be living in somewhat of a utopia. I mean, plenty of food and water, no sickness, fruitful growing families, long life. Sounds just like America, doesn't it? No, of course not. Now, this is the kind of verse that false teachers will gravitate to who will promote health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine that is foreign to God's word, but they'll, they'll find it. They'll wrench a text like this out of its context. But what, what God is saying here, he's not guaranteeing that no one will go hungry and no one will be sick, but this is, this is a general principle of God saying, look, if, if you are obedient, you will experience a good and a blessed life in the land. Or to put it a little bit differently, if you set your heart to live life on God's terms, you will discover not only that your life will make progress toward a growing holiness, but also toward a general happiness. Live life for the Lord, and generally speaking, 
joy and happiness will be your reward. I mean, isn't that what we teach our children? Listen, follow the ways of the Lord. If you follow the ways of the Lord, things will go well. That doesn't mean they'll go perfect because we're in a sin-cursed world. There's sin, there's struggle, there's trials, there's difficulties. But the general principle is, look, this is what it's going to be like for you. If you listen to me, if you carefully pay attention to what I'm saying, if you do what I say, then this is going to go well for you and you will enjoy this land. Now let's put this in perspective. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you would, please. Genesis 3 and verses 14 through 19. We need to see what happens because of Adam. And because of Adam, the land is cursed. And what we find here, as we look over this text, is that our representative father, Adam, plunged all of us into misery, where relationships would be broken, where women would experience pain in childbirth, where there would be a new struggle and toil of labor for food where even the ground, the land, is cursed. So when we read what God is promising Israel, it might seem like they will be living in Eden's backyard or close to it. But he's giving a general principle, but he's saying, look, this land is going to be progress from the cursed land that you now have. Now, why does God promise them land or a place or a home like that? Well, think of it this way. We've already touched on this. In the same way that Israel's pilgrimage is a type or a picture of the Christian life, so likewise the land of Canaan would be a type or a picture of the new creation where the curse would finally and perfectly be removed forever. So there's parallels, there's these pictures to help them understand what it was going to be like as as they serve the Lord and as they looked ahead for his promises. Now, bringing this all together, we have Israel. There was uh, slavery, bondage, we would say. And God provided the exodus. He provided deliverance for them. And then he's going to send them after the revealing of the law on a pilgrimage. And ultimately, that, that would be a pilgrimage to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that is flowing with milk and honey, right? All these descriptions about it. But for the believer, for the church, we see ourselves in the bondage of sin. And God, through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done on the cross, has paid for that sin. He's provided deliverance through that shed blood. And now, as we enter into this walk with him, this life with him, we are on a pilgrimage until he ultimately calls us home. So there's the same parallel patterns going on here, right? Bondage. Exodus, pilgrimage, going home. <laughs> and friends, this is, this is what happens. We move from a, a cursed land to a, a land that is restored. And that happens because of Christ. And we read in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, the following. Just listen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and he will be his uh, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Rather, uh, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The curse of the land will be removed because the land will be restored ultimately as a result of Christ. So this is the place Christ is guiding us to. This is the home that we long for. And as the old gospel hymn says, and you can sing along with me, this world is not our home. We're just what? A passing through. And we're looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's Hebrews 11.10. And we're, while we're on this journey to our home, we lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and we run with endurance the race that is set before us, Hebrews 12.1. And Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, we press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are homeless right now. But we have a home. And that home is a certainty. That home is a reality. But we're not there yet. Because we're still on this journey. And if you're a child of God, you are on your journey home. Christ is leading you as a shepherd from the green meadows through the valley, even the shadow of death, but he's leading and guiding you home where you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You didn't know that was coming, did you? So friends, we have a land to welcome us. We have an angel to guide us but we also have a victory to assure us. Now, let us turn back to Exodus 3 and remind ourselves of the promise that God revealed to Moses about Israel at the burning bush, and we're going to pick it up at verse 7. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7. This is important for us to see what he promised and what he is now reaffirming as he ends this case law. Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it's right there in our text, right? It's right in there in Exodus 23. And since the time of the burning bush, uh, Revelation, God has been at work. He brought the ten plagues. He, he, he instituted the feast of Passover. Uh, Israel uh, left and was delivered out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. The God provides bread and water for them in the wilderness. He breathes out the Ten Commandments. He establishes the case law and this book of the covenant. And now he reminds them of his commitment to bring about victory. And Israel embarks on this journey to the promised land. As they do that, they will face many obstacles, many struggles, many 
trials and choices. And friends, the same is true of our journey with God. He has already promised victory. That is certain. That is sure. And that's why John Bunyan wrote his famous Pilgrim's Progress to show us that we're all pilgrims on a journey to the celestial city. And that we'll encounter all sorts of people, places, and challenges, and deceptions. And some of them may seem reasonable. And some of the wisdom of the world will actually be appealing. But it would run contrary to what God says and what God desires. And he, he paints a picture to help us to, to keep pursuing on that journey. But God's children are to filter everything through what God has revealed in his word. And in the same way, now Israel considers the journey before them, the angel guiding them and the land that will welcome them. They must pay careful attention to what God says. And the first thing I want to note here is this. They are called to pilgrim responsibility. Although there is a certain victory God still holds his pilgrims, his children, responsible for how they think, how they act, how they behave, what they say. Notice what God says in verse 22. It's a conditional promise. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. It doesn't change the fact that that victory is sure. What he's saying is that you have a responsibility to listen and to obey. So in other words, Israel has responsibilities and obligations to the Lord, even though he has promised them this land and this angel to go before them. The first responsibility is the responsibility to not compromise. And we'll read verse 23. And 24, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the, the, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, saying, this is what I'm going to do, you shall not bow to their gods. You shall not serve them. You shall not do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So ultimately, God is saying, don't compromise. Now, God knows it's extremely tempting for his people to to start strong, but then to soften and to start to welcome and to start to be intrigued and to start to participate. And before long, they're bowing down to these gods. He's like, no, no, don't compromise. Now, the New Testament warns us to not be squeezed into the world's mold, right? That's Romans 12, 2, I think it is. You see, the danger is that the world around us wants us to fit into its ideology and to conform to its ways of thinking and behavior. And in order to do that, ultimately, we will have to compromise the truth of God's word. So God doesn't just tell them what not to do, He also says what they are to do. And so it isn't just about avoiding the Canaanites and their gods. He says, utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. These pillars are their idols. 
These pillars are the, the, the pictures of their religion. So as you are as you're cleansing the land, you're also cleansing the land of the remnants of their worship of their gods. But you know what human nature is like? Wow, this temple is really cool. Look at that artwork. Look at how they were doing this worship. That's up. Well, it makes sense. Hey, you know what? We could use this. And now we begin this compromise. See, in other words, they were to confront their potential tendency toward syncretism by destroying the Canaanite idols. Now, saying, what in the world is syncretism? Syncretism, it, it simply means when, when you're merging two opposing ideas. Somehow you're trying to bring them together. You have God's ways and you have Canaan's ways. They don't mix, friends. Now, it's, it's, it, it's interesting. You know, you watch shows on TV and people talk about, you know, you know I, I'm a follower of Christ. They, they identify themselves as Christians. And then you, you, you watch them, you see them involved in or, or saying things. You're like, that is nowhere in Scripture. But it's just this cultural Christianity that is syncretistic. It just kind of morphs to wherever you want to go. And God says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. <laughs> and what happens when those who follow Yahweh start to embrace the gods of pagan nations is the healthy worship of God Yahweh is deluded to the point that eventually he is forgotten and the pagan gods are given priority. And unfortunately, friends, as the story goes on, Israel doesn't follow this instruction. They are syncretistic. And they suffer incredible hardship as a result. So, first of all, to not compromise. Secondly, they have a responsibility to not make a covenant. That means to make peace with. In this particular situation, this is what God is calling for. He's calling for a cleansing. You shall make no covenant with them or, and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So to make a covenant with them is to somehow compromise, agree to that in some kind of a formal way. And friends, that is... A syncretistic snare. That's what he says. Now, what is a snare? A snare is, is an expression or it's a tool that's used to catch animals, right? And you've probably seen someone have a trap, and you, you, you've maybe watched a YouTube video, maybe you've done it yourself, and you have the snare ready to go, and the animal comes up. There's this beautiful, wonderful, tasty morsel of something in there, right? And the animal comes up, and the animal's looking around. And quite frankly, the animal is concerned about its, welf its welfare. That's what animals are like. They're very skittish, and they're concerned, right? And so it's looking around. It's checking out to see if it's safe or not. It goes a little bit closer. It's sniffing a little bit, and it's looking around to see if it's okay. And there comes a point in time where that animal, in its mind, its little brain says, I think everything's okay. And quite frankly, the smell of that little morsel is so compelling, I think I'm going to go for it. And so they go for it. And as soon as they do, whop, they are caught. The reality is that animal has no idea of the trap that is being set for them. They're blind to it. They don't even comprehend it. And God is saying, 
you, if you allow yourselves to, to compromise and to have a covenant with the people of Canaan in this way, you're not even going to know what's going to hit you. It'll be a snare to you, and you will be sucked in. And ultimately, friends, that is what happens. So there's this pilgrim responsibility. But let's not just think about that. We do have a responsibility, but let's, let's settle in now on this divine victory. God promises to bring them victory, but he will do it through them. And that is God's way. He works his will through his people, his weird, strange, sinful, struggling people through you and me. To put it differently, they will have to fight against the enemy and to protect themselves from the influence of their pagan gods and ways, but their victory will be by God's design. In other words, God's not saying, well, you're responsible now. I hope you have a good time. I've told you what you need to know. No, he's not, he's not leaving them alone. He's going with them. He's helping them. But ultimately, the victory will be his. You see, he says, I will blot out your enemies, but you must listen and obey and drive them out. Notice how many times in the text we read God saying, I will. I will take sickness away. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror. I will throw them into confusion. I will make your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send hornets before you. I will drive them out little by little. I will set your border. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. I will, I will, I will. At the same time God is saying, I will, he's saying, but you're responsible to obey. And you're responsible to listen. And the reality is that we are the weakest link in this arrangement. <laughs> God will do what he says he will do. We won't often do what we should do. So we must consider how this text speaks to our Christian pilgrimage. And I just want to I want to mention Matthew 11, verse 12. You may not quite understand it as, you, as we read it, and that's not putting you down or anything like that because it is a hard passage, but Matthew eleven twelve says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the, violence, the violent take it by force. So what in the world is that about? Is it talking about the violence because we're followers of Christ or part of the kingdom? Um, some have concluded that is the case. Um, others also conclude the idea of this violence is taking something by force or vigorously pressing forward for something. And based on the context, it appears that what Jesus has in mind here is the latter. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is a kind of spiritual warfare that Christians must engage in if we're to take possession of God's promised inheritance. It just doesn't happen. God says, you have to fight. There's a battle going on. There's no coasting into heaven, friends. We take it by force. And that's why Paul in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 12 and following, says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, we do not wrestle against. But we do wrestle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these spiritual arenas. There is a war going on, friends. And we have the benefit of knowing how it ends. 
We have the confidence and the certainty of what God has promised to be sure of how it ends. But there is a, there's a journey and there's a progress. And so, friends, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. We are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this victory, this conquest, this progressive sanctification is evident for us. Now, what does God promise? Um, what does God promise Israel? Well, let's just quickly highlight it. First of all, He promises conquest over the people. And it's, the language here is pretty powerful, isn't it? I will send my terror before you and throw you into confusion. I mean, God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go before it. This is what's going to happen. And can you just imagine what it's like running into a hornet's nest? Maybe some of you have experienced that. And you've run into a hornet's nest, and all of a sudden, all these hornets start flying out. My wife and I, when we were in Buffalo, New York one day, in the kitchen, and I heard this kind of like, like, what in the world is that? Looking around, it's kind of low, kind of. I walked into the living room, and there was this, I didn't know, it looked like a bee or something like that, and it must, it must have been this big. All right, no, it wasn't that it was, it was probably a good two inches in length. And it was just looking at me going, whoa, 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 you know. It was huge. Never seen anything like it before. I mean, we could have played, you know, tennis with it or something like that. I mean, it was that large. And I just imagine running into a nest of these. When you're running, you're not saying, should I go here? Should I go here? Maybe I'll go there. No, you're just like, ah! And you're running as fast as you can wherever you can go to get away from the hornets. That's the picture that God is giving Israel here of what he is about to do. My terror will go before you. Just think about those words. I'm going to throw them into confusion. My hornets are going to go ahead of you. It's powerful stuff. God is promising here his victory. But he also promises the possession of the land. And this is the ultimate goal, isn't it? This is the land of promise. This is to be their true home. And yet, they will not possess it all at once. Notice we have here, first of all, an assured possession. This will be your land. We have that in verse 26. And verse 33, this is the place that he has prepared for them. So go on this journey with the assurance that this is yours. Secondly, this will be a gradual possession. I will not drive them out for, uh, from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. That's kind of what in the world is going on there. I mean, we're living in America. If we want something now, we go now. We go through the drive-thru. We want it now. We have apps. Get it to me now. God is saying to Israel, oh, you're going to get this land, but you're not going to get it quickly. And the reason you're not going to get it quickly is because you're not prepared to take care of it. You have no idea what to do. 
but I'm going to prepare you along the journey so that when it's time to take the land, you will be ready. And he says in verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Little by little. It will be a complete possession. And here we have in verse 31, the description of the borders. There's really two markers. There's the, the markers based on the sea. We have the, the Red Sea, which would be to the southeast. And we have the Sea of the Philistines. Just think of the Mediterranean Sea. That's the, the sea markers. And then you have the north and south markers. The wilderness, which would be in the south, called the Negev. And then you have the river Euphrates, which would be in the northern part. Right, way, way above where Israel is even today. This is the border. It's a huge lot of land for this wandering people. Friends, it's a vast territory, but it would come to them little by little. And there'd be many setbacks along the way. And there would be times when they turn away from the Lord and they begin to worship the foreign gods. But hear this, God, in his patient, loving kindness, would demonstrate his steadfast love, his covenant love and commitment to them. And he would rescue them and he would restore them. And ultimately, we find it's not until... Solomon is king where the lands actually reach these borders. And even then, for a short period of time, we find that in 1 Kings 4. So friends, we have an angel to guide us. We have a land that welcomes us. And we have a victory to assure us. But I want to conclude really with four thoughts. Our time is, is, is short, and so I will brief, be brief with each of them. But I want you to hear this because there is application for us that is important. Question number one. Are you committed to the journey? Hey, what do you mean by that, Pastor Rod? I think sometimes we speak far more about our salvation than we speak about our sanctification. We can be gospel-centered people and so focus on the gospel and getting the gospel right that we're not emphasizing and spending time in our sanctification because of the gospel. God has delivered us but he's delivered us to a journey. Some people, I think, uh, you probably heard this expression before, now that I'm saved, I've got my ticket to heaven, so I'm good to go. Now just put that in the terms of Israel. We got out of Egypt. We're good to go. We don't need to do anything more. We're out. We're free. Now I can do what I want. No, 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 no. When God delivers you out of your bondage of sin, he ushers into this new abundant life, which is your progressive sanctification. It's a place where you have to work. It's where you have to labor. It's not passive. It's active. So just listen. 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself for godliness. Ephesians 4, 22 through 25, put off, uh, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on. These are, these are words that say, make progress in your spiritual growth. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul there is saying, this is my goal for these people to make them, uh, to present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, I struggle with all the energy he powerfully works within me. This is work. In Philippians chapter 2, 
Verse 12 and following, Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work to be saved. He's talking about this, this life now that you live because you are saved. You're to work at it. You're to work hard at it. And he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work, God works. So friends, we have this journey that God has called to. It begins with our salvation. It continues with our progressive sanctification. And ultimately, it ends with our glorification when we're called up into heaven, whatever that might look like for us individually. But God calls us to the journey. But I wonder whether we've forgotten the journey. Got our ticket. Doing our own thing now. Rather than what God wants us to do in pursuing that walk. Secondly, whose voice are you listening to? God called Israel to to a journey where he said, obey the voice of the angel. Whose voice are you listening to? Is it the voice of the culture or is it the voice of Christ? There's all sorts of voices, aren't there? And it's so easy to be caught up in the the voice of the culture and to want to be affirming with the culture and identify with the culture. But friends, we must be the voice of Christ in the culture. This is the voice that this culture needs. It's the voice that you and I need. So we must pay attention to his voice. We must spend time listening to his voice, read his voice, study his voice, embrace what he is saying. And his voice will bring clarity to the health or foolishness of other voices. Isn't it interesting that when God speaks At the transfiguration of Jesus, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Are we paying careful attention to his voice? Are we carefully obeying his voice? Whose voice are you listening to? Under that thought. Number three, is heaven really your home? Now you can say, well, are you talking about, am I, am I uh, truly a, a follower of Christ? Well, certainly that is one of the questions that follows this question. But I wonder whether we have been so distracted at times with the world in which we live in that we've forgotten about heaven actually being our home and we're so transfixed with this being our home. Can you let go of this world when it's time Or maybe the question should be, can you run to Jesus when it's time? Are you eager for heaven? I realize we have loved ones, we have friendships, we have things going on here that are important. Those are responsibilities. Those are relationships that all fit into the the, the parameter of what God says we are to be as, as his children. But friends, do we long for heaven as our home? You see, there's two motivations. You see it up there on the screen. We have the gospel assurance that that pushes us in our journey, and we have the hope of heaven that is pulling us on the journey, right? And I wonder sometimes if we're just viewing the gospel assurance, which is good, but we're missing out on the, the wonderful prospect of heaven that is pulling us on the journey. 
Paul says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. He was ready. He was ready. Is heaven really your home? Finally, are you still fighting the battle? Or have you gone AWOL? You know what AWOL means? It means absent without leave. You're supposed to be fighting. Everyone in this room, if you're a child of God, is a soldier of Christ. And you're to be clothed with the weapons and the armor for warfare. And there's a battle taking place, and it's a battle within, and it's a battle without. In other words, it's a battle that takes place in the arena of our heart where our, we wrestle with our desires and our sinful flesh. And it's a battle that comes from outside when we have to deal with ideologies and attitudes and all things that we encounter. And God has given us his armor, and his word, and his truth to guide us along the way. But I wonder if our armor is, figuratively speaking, hanging up in our closet. We've put it away. I mean, the helmet of salvation, where it is, it's tucked in a box with some mothballs somewhere. I'm just trying to, trying to give a, an image to say, look, this is what God has given us. What are we doing with it? Have we forgotten about the fact that we are in a battle together with him? I love the words of the Apostle Paul, not just because I'm a pastor, but I think it's helpful for us here. At the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he knows he's anticipating his execution. He's writing to Timothy this last letter. And he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. See, Paul understood that he was on a journey. But he, was, he understood that he was on his way home. And he was looking forward to that prospect. Again, the words of Paul to help kind of land the plane for us again. Philippians 1.6, he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, God has called us, just like Israel, to be on a pilgrimage. To celebrate our, our conversion, our salvation. To enter into this wonderful, abundant life of progressive sanctification with the, the guide of an angel, Christ, with the, the promise of a heavenly home, and with the certain reality and awareness that what God has promised will actually take place because he accomplished the victory for us on the cross. Friends, would you be encouraged today that what God is saying to us as Christians, he was saying to Israel on the mountain too. Lord, help us today. I know that we are all struggling along in our journey and Lord, we are imperfect people. You know that. You're aware of that. But Lord, you've called us to make progress in ways that you have um, revealed. To, to put off our sinful self and to put on the Christ-likeness that comes through obedience to your word. And help us, Lord, as we, as we wrestle and we allow this text to settle in our hearts. To be reminded afresh of the things that you've called us to. Lord, now as we transition to a time where we 
celebrate what you have done on the cross, Lord, that gives the, the wonderful foundation to these things that we're talking about. May we ponder for a moment that you gave your body for us. That you humbled yourself. You, you let go of heaven to come to this earth and to take upon yourself the form of man to experience all the kinds of trials, struggles that we would experience in our humanity. You came and you are, you are dying by giving of yourself. You're humbled by that, Lord. And Lord, we're reminded also of what you have done in being that sacrifice once for all. You shed your blood to pay for our sins. We were not deserving of any of it, Lord. By your grace, we have been saved. Lord, may we rest and nestle in, Lord, to this time of reflection, celebration, and praise. We ask in your precious name, amen.